0: This morning, we're continuing our look at the book of Colossians. As we work our way through the book of Colossians, you'll see that we'll be talking about this idea of knowing the real Jesus and living in his truth. And when you look at the portion of Scripture that we're looking at today, the chapter portion from chapter 1, the segment, you'll see that the overall theme of the book is illustrated in a very real way in the passage that we're looking at. This morning, we're going to pick up at chapter 1, verse 15, And I'm going to read in just a moment down to verse 23 of chapter 1, and today we're just going to be asking the question, did you know this about Jesus? And the reason I'm I'm saying that, the reason I'm posing that kind of question is because there's a variety of things that are brought up in this portion of Colossians chapter 1 that I think probably would fall into a category of things people don't really think about in regard to Jesus all that often, but we definitely should. So, Colossians 1, starting with verse 15, this is what we read. It says this, "...He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things." Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at your word together this morning and to be thinking about the things that you've revealed to us in it. And Father, we pray that as we look at this portion of Colossians 1, that you'd help us to understand more about your son, about who your son is, about his nature, about how he is at work in our lives and what he came to this earth to demonstrate and accomplish on our behalf. Lord, we're so grateful that we have the privilege to be able to spend time like this meditating on these things, and we pray that our minds and our our hearts would be open to this truth because we know, Lord, that there are so many things that that sometimes flash through our minds like distractions and all sorts of things that that sometimes we over-focus on that really you're just encouraging us to give over to you. So, Lord, we pray that you prepare our minds now to receive this truth and that your Holy Spirit would speak to us with power, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think one of the most interesting and revealing questions you can ask somebody is, who do you think Jesus is? Who do you think Jesus is? I think that question reveals a lot about somebody's understanding of history. I think that question reveals a lot about somebody's understanding of theology. I also think it it reveals a lot about somebody's faith. If you ask that question, who do you think Jesus is, you're going to learn a lot about the person that you're asking that question to. Now, you've probably noticed this, I've certainly noticed this, but over the past few decades, I think there's been a gradual cultural shift away from reverence and away from respect toward the name of Jesus. So with more regularity, I see Christ's name used in the punchline of jokes. Uh, I've also seen him treated as if he's maybe just like a caricature, sometimes in a cartoon context, sometimes in comedic t-shirts, things of that nature. But I'm convinced that if we truly appreciated who Jesus is, that sort of stuff would be far less common. When you look at what Scripture reveals to us about Christ and about his nature, we're shown that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have lived in perfect unity as one, For all eternity. So when God the Son took on flesh, when Jesus Christ was born as a man, he didn't stop being God. He became 100% God, or excuse me, 100% man and 100% God at the same time. Theologians call that miracle the hypostatic union, if you've ever heard that term. But because Jesus is 100% man, because he became a man, there's a large portion of this world that forgets that he's 100% God as well. And sometimes I actually wonder if we as believers maybe don't think about that enough as well. In fact, when you look at what the Apostle Paul is teaching here to the Colossians, what he's speaking to this group of people, it seems to be that among them There were some misunderstandings about the nature of Jesus and some misunderstandings about the character of Jesus that the apostle Paul felt the need to correct as he, as he wrote to these believers in the city of Colossae. And you can see some of these things that he addresses in the portion of scripture that we just read and we'll revisit a little bit at a time over the course of our time together today. And so as we look at what Paul clarified here in Colossians chapter one, starting with verse 15, I think it might help, it might be helpful for us to ask the question, did I know this about Jesus? Is this something I was aware of? Is this something that, that I was alerted to and just never really gave a whole lot of thought to? Because I think that there might be a few things about him that this scripture will help clarify for you, just as it did for the believers living in the era of the early church. And one of the things that this portion of scripture brings up that I think is really interesting to to really think about, and I hope we'll think about this today as we look at this together, is the fact that, first of all, Scripture reveals to us that Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. So just think about that statement for a second. Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. Now, why am I saying it that way? Well, look look again at verse 15 down to verse 17 of Colossians 1. Paul says it this way. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And then, it, then Paul makes this statement, he says, and he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Now, those of you that know me well know that I enjoy studying history. In fact, just uh, yesterday I was talking to my oldest daughter about podcasts that we enjoy listening to related to history, and she shared a new one with me that I wasn't familiar with, and so now I plan to check that out. But that's not just something for this season of my life. I've enjoyed studying history from my earliest years. My family actually noticed this about me when I was just a young child, and I still remember surprising my grandmother when we had come to her house... To, we came to visit her on East Mountain in Scranton, and right when we walked in, she must have been vacuuming right before we got there, because right when we walked in, her vacuum was standing up in the entryway, and I looked at it, and on the side of it, it said Hoover. I saw, I saw that, and I read that, I was just a, a little kid, but I was able to read at the time, and, and uh, I asked my grandmother, I said, I said, Grammy, is, is your vacuum named after Hoover the President? And, and she looked at me and she's like, wait, I didn't know you knew that there was a President Hoover. <laughs> and I still remember that, that interaction, but that was something, I used to read an almanac all the time when I was a kid. I used to read up on the presidents, read up on history. And I think one of the things that we're used to when we're studying history is the concept of events having a beginning and an end. When you're reading through history, when you studied history in high school, you see You see all sorts of things, having a beginning and an end. World leaders are born, and then world leaders die. Nations are founded, but then those nations either crumble from within or get invaded from the outside by a stronger nation. But when you look at Christ, when you look at who he is and and, uh, what Scripture reveals to us about him, Jesus isn't like the nations, and Jesus isn't like the leaders that we're typically used to. He has no beginning, and he has no end. In fact, Scripture is very clear when you look at this portion of Scripture, but also elsewhere. It's, it, scripture is very clear that Jesus created all things. And Paul here is very specific to explain what he means by that. He says he created all things visible and invisible. So Jesus created all things visible and invisible, everything physical, everything spiritual. And Paul also explains that Jesus sustains everything he created. So that means the world, the universe, the angels, human beings, all of it, all created by Jesus and by his divine power, all creation is being held together. So theoretically, if he stopped sustaining what he created, it would fall into chaos. It would crumble. It would cease to exist. And then Paul, in the midst of talking about all of this, also refers to Jesus as being the firstborn of all creation. And sometimes that statement throws people off, especially in light of what he's saying here, because it's very clear, there's no ambiguity to it, that all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. And then you see the statement, the firstborn of all creation. Well, I have four children and I remember the first one that was born. And then and then some people would say all right, well in the in the the context of that scripture being used or that term being used back in the day All right, here's a pop quiz for you, and I realize we're in a large group here, so you're not really going to answer this out loud most likely, but just answer this in your head. Um, My children go like this. My first child is a girl, then two years later we had a boy, and then two years after that we had a boy, and then two years after that we had a girl, and then two years after that we rested. (laughs) Which child is my firstborn? Most of you would be like, well, the girl you said first. You just gave us the list. Pay attention. Look at your Christmas card, man, right? Well, in the culture of the time, my firstborn would have been my son, even though he was born second. And we tend to think of firstborn, we tend to think of it as born first, right? But in the context of how that term was used in that culture, it was more along the lines of a title, something that conveyed a certain amount of authority. It's not something that you would just take in, in the sense of born first. And Paul here refers to Jesus as being the firstborn of all creation. And sometimes people look at that statement and they get tripped up by it because they're, they're like, wait a second, this says Jesus created all things. But then I, I read that statement and in my mind, it almost makes it sound like he's a created being. So I don't know if anyone even thought that when we, when we read that, but that's not what it's trying to convey. What it's trying to convey here is a title. What it's trying to convey here is authority. So it's, it, it, it's not speaking of Jesus as, as something created. It's not speaking of him as the first thing created. That term's being used in a royal sense, like you would when you're thinking about a monarchy and how that, that tends to operate. And as the son of a king possesses authority to rule so too does Jesus as Son of God. So when he came to this earth, what he was doing is he's making God visible to us, Paul Paul explains here. And when he returns to this earth, we're also going to see the clearest demonstration of his divine authority and his divine power over what he has created. Because he is the firstborn of all creation. He has the authority... The rule over all creation. He has authority over what he has created. Now, when we think of Jesus, I'm just kind of curious, and I want you to think about this in your mind. When we think of Jesus, how often do we think about him being creator and sustainer of the universe, like Paul explains in this passage of Scripture? I think most often we think of Jesus as the divine Son of God who came to this earth as our Savior. That's 100% correct. But he's more than that. When Jesus came to save us, when Jesus came to restore this lost creation, he came to rescue and restore the very thing that he made in the first place. So now let me ask another question. I want you to think about this for just a second. So knowing this to be true, right? If you, expe- if you accept what Paul says here about Jesus, that all things were created uh, through Jesus Christ, that he is the creator and that he is the sustainer, How does that impact how you perceive Christ's crucifixion? I'll explain by, I'll explain what I mean by that question. So in that moment, right, as Christ came to this earth, lived the perfect life, and then was crucified on our behalf, in that moment, and in the moments leading up to that crucifixion, how was Jesus treated? Scripture tells us that Jesus was mocked. He was also beaten by the people he had made. He was mocked and beaten by people he had made. He was nailed to a cross made from wood that he created. He was being held to that cross with metal spikes that were being held together by his sustaining power on the molecular level. not that a fascinating way to consider the crucifixion, what was taking place? That Jesus was actively sustaining the form and the function of the metal spikes holding him to the wood that he was being crucified to. The lives of the very people that were torturing Jesus were being sustained by him. He was sustaining their lives. How amazing is that to ponder? And what what does that reveal to us just about his great patience and love for his creation? That he'd be willing to endure all that knowing that he was the one sustaining it. He sustained it. So that ultimately the effect of it could be something that you and I get to experience. He did that for our benefit. Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. But this scripture tells us Jesus a little bit more about Jesus. That Jesus is the head of the church. Now, look at what it says in verses 18 to 20. There it says this, and he is the head of the body, or excuse me, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So you see, even deeper explanation here of this idea of the the firstborn status, his preeminence, right? It says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let me pause there for just a second. The other day, I, I actually got a message from another pastor. And this is a pastor that occasionally asks me for ministry counsel. So a few times a year, he'll, he'll typically reach out to me just with a question about something or, or just want to talk about something related to ministry. And without going into a ton of detail... Uh, this particular pastor has been discouraged for a very long time. The majority of time that I've known him serving in the present role that he's serving in, he has seemed discouraged, and I think he would confirm that. He's, he seemed pretty discouraged. But he still remains faithful in his pastoral role. He's faithful to what the Lord's given him to do, but he's, his heart's pretty much crushed. At present, he is serving in a church context that doesn't seem very interested in reaching out to the people of their community. Nothing he has suggested, nothing that he tries ever seems to gain the interest of those that he's trying to lead and serve, and uh, as a result, they don't value it. They don't, they don't focus on it. In fact, according to him, their primary concern would be things like their traditions or maintaining their property or keeping things as comfortable as they could possibly keep things for as long as possible, even though this approach has contributed to the gradual decline of the church, and it's been a very noticeable decline in recent years in particular. And so my friend confessed this to me. This is what he said. He said that the only hope he sees for the church that he's leading is that maybe someday soon it will die and then possibly be replanted with a new vision and new internal leadership. And sometimes I think about some of my friends like that on Sunday mornings, even as, as I, I feel a, a joy in, in coming before our congregation and preaching and realizing that for some people, it's not so much, I mean, there's joy in preaching the word, but for some people, I, you have to imagine it's a real struggle, because I feel like in his context, he, he just feels like he's looking out at a sea of ambivalence, just a, a sea of faces that don't really seem to care about the things that, that he's proclaiming. And the truth is, his church is not the only one struggling. And, and I think it can be rather easy to pick on the church in general. Um, I will even confess something to you, I'll confess my own irritation with the church in general, uh, over, um, especially over the course of recent years. Um, I see this era of history as a great opportunity for the church to demonstrate a powerful blend of compassion and courage. There's such a golden opportunity to display both of those things, compassion and Courage. But instead of seizing that opportunity, I'm seeing a lot of churches cower in fear because as far as I can tell, they their leaders either lack support or maybe they lack some wisdom or maybe they lack some faith or in some context, I actually think they lack a backbone. And so I look at some of that and it can be very easy for me at times to maybe nitpick or be a little vocal. You should hear some of the opinions I say when it's just me and my wife in the car together. Oh my goodness, I have so many opinions that I would never say if I was being recorded. And here's the thing. As easy as the church can be to pick on sometimes, Jesus still loves her. She still is bride. And I love the fact that Jesus is not ashamed to call the church His own. Even, you could, you could, you know, we could always find errors where, you know, or just issues that the church could do better, right? And yet Jesus is not ashamed to call her his own. And the scripture here tells us what? Jesus is head of the church. And the church consists of those that Jesus has, has redeemed from the power of sin with the blood that he lovingly shed on the cross. And so instead of being overly critical of the church, I wonder what it would be like if we would start viewing the church like Jesus views the church. And we'll talk about this more in just a couple minutes, but I just want to plant that seed in the back of your mind. What would it look like to start looking at the church the way Jesus looks at the church? Jesus is the head of the church, and he sees the church in a particular way. And we're going we're gonna to spend a moment in just a few minutes looking specifically at how Jesus sees the church. When he looks at his bride, what does he see? Does he see errors? Does he see mistakes? Does he see something else? I love what scripture tells us about it. You know, as easy as the church can be to pick on, Jesus still loves her. And the scripture here tells us that Jesus being the head of the church, he's also firstborn from the dead. So the resurrection that we as members of his church, the resurrection that we will enjoy, it finds its foundation in his resurrection from the grave. Our union with him means that his victory over death becomes our victory over death as well. So even though the church at times may look weak, even though the church at times may not seem impressive from a human standpoint, it remains the bride of Christ. And according to what the scripture teaches, it will never die. And since Jesus is the head of the church, I think we as members of a local church body that that is part of the overall church, I think we should make sure that everything that we do as a local church brings glory to Christ. I think that's his calling upon us as a local church. So meaning when messages are preached from this pulpit, let's proclaim Christ's glory. Let's proclaim his power to save. When the church gathers to sing, when the church gathers to pray, let's give praise to his name and let's never keep secret the fact that our hope is in him. Uh, can I share a, a conversation that I have frequently with, with those who lead music for our worship services that actually comes up uh from time to time and it's kind of entertaining. I hope that they don't find this annoying because I think I've, I've I've said it quite a few times, but from time to time as uh, our various uh, worship teams are preparing for our worship services, they will ask me what I plan to be preaching about on that Sunday so that maybe they could pick some songs that will that will fit with that theme. That's a pretty reasonable request, isn't it? And I see that those that are leading worship saying, "Yeah, it's a very reasonable request, John," right? It is a very reasonable request, and I actually appreciate the heart of that question, so I truly hope they don't get annoyed with me because I tend to give a very standard answer. And my answer almost always is some version of this. If you keep picking songs about Jesus, which they do, thankfully, you keep picking songs about Jesus, they will always fit with what I'm preaching about that Sunday. I could tell you what I'm going to be preaching about 30 weeks from now. You know what I'm going to be preaching about 30 weeks from now? Whoever's on the rotation 30 weeks from now, if you pick songs... About Jesus, they will fit very well with that message. I don't even know what I'm preaching about that Sunday. I just know it's going to be about Jesus. Because ultimately, what does Scripture show us? When you work through Scripture, you realize the whole thing's pointing to Him. Doesn't matter if I'm in the book of Genesis. It doesn't matter if I'm in the book of Colossians. The entire thing is pointing to Jesus Christ. And I always love what the, what, uh, Charles Spurgeon said. He said, just like, you know, there's, in the Roman Empire, there was always, all roads led to Rome, right? And he said, He said, it doesn't matter where you are in scripture. He said, I'm always looking for the road from that scripture to Christ. There's always a road. And he said, my job as a preacher is to show the church in my preaching how all, all those, you know, all scripture is pointing to Christ. And so we as a church, we have the opportunity as we sing, as we pray, as we preach, as we proclaim, as we live our lives, we want to give glory to Christ. Well, why do we want to give glory to Christ? Well, Christ is head of the church. Christ is head of our lives. Christ is our creator. He is our sustainer. He is our redeemer. He's our savior. He's the head of the church, and we want to give him glory. And it's really cool to think about the fact that as we seek to give him glory, and you and I know that there are a lot of things in our lives that need improvement. I, can, I have a very long list of things in my own life that I could look at and say, I'm really trying to improve in that area. But I'm grateful that my relationship with Jesus Christ isn't one about self-improvement. I'm grateful for the fact that Christ is accomplishing a work in me, and he's accomplishing a work in you, where ultimately he's bringing us to a desired end. And he sees us as if we're already there. And I love what Paul reveals to us when you look at verses 21 and 22. Because here he reveals to us that Jesus is working in you and me to present us as holy and blameless. That's how he sees his church, holy and blameless. He's not picking us apart constantly. He's honest with us. He's not picking us apart. He sees us as holy and blameless. Look at what it tells us in verses 21 and 22. It says, and you, so think about our old life as we look at this. It says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's how he sees his bride. This past week I had a conversation with with a friend who told me she plans to work toward restoring a friendship that was previously damaged. She said, I think there's something I can do to restore that friendship, and I think I'm going to work on it. And so she said it's part of her plan. She's going to restore a friendship that had been previously damaged. And I loved hearing that because I think it's such a powerful application of the kind of truth that Paul's proclaiming in these verses. Because the Colossians, just like Christians of of every era of history, just like you and I living in the era in which we live right now, we were once alienated from God. Just like Paul talks about in this portion of Scripture, we were once alienated from God, separated from God. And Scripture tells us here that our minds were hostile to God. Isn't it interesting how people think that they were ambivalent toward God? And then you look at what Scripture tells us. It says, no, you weren't ambivalent toward God. You were hostile toward God. And you think, me? Me? When was I ever hostile to God? And yet all of us were in that same boat. We were hostile to God. And our lives demonstrated that hostility because we embraced evil deeds that this world tries to tell us are good. So as we embraced wickedness, what were we doing? We're saying, my mind is hostile to the things of God. My mind is hostile to the holiness of God. I'm opposed to the holiness of God because I embrace the wickedness that this world tells me to embrace. This world told me, and I believe, that greed and arrogance and selfishness were good things. So there's a season of my life that was marked by those very things. But now, through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, I've been brought near to Him. And because He's opened my eyes to understand the truth, I no longer believe the things that I used to believe. And I'm sure that, that, you, that many of us, if not most of us, gathered together in this place can share that same testimony, We were once alienated from God, but through faith in Jesus Christ, we are no longer alienated from him. We are reconciled by Jesus. We are reconciled to the Father through Jesus Christ. To reconcile something means to take something that's been distant and bring it close. And now, when you look at what the Scripture tells us, according to the Scripture, Jesus is doing a new work within us. He's doing a a new work within all who trust in him. He's working to present us as holy and blameless before the Father. So by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, we have been united to Him. And the righteousness of Christ has been given to all who believe. And our sins have been forgiven, and our stains have been wiped away, and we've been cleansed of our unrighteousness, and we've been cleansed of our rebellion. We've been drawn near to Jesus Christ. And I have to say, that's a significant thing that can impact the way you live for the better. What kind of difference do you think it would start making in your life if you began to see yourself the way Jesus sees you? I would contend that most people in this world do not see themselves the way Christ sees them. I would contend that many Christians do not see themselves the way Christ sees them. I think there are many Christians repeating something to their heart that is not true. I think There are many Christians that have adopted a worldly label for themselves, and they paint themselves with that label, and they preach that to their hearts over and over and over again, and they fail to understand who they are in the eyes of Christ. So what difference would it make if we started preaching to ourselves the truth as it's outlined in Scripture? You think if you began seeing yourself the way this Scripture tells us Christ Jesus, holy, blameless, without reproach, holy, blameless, or above reproach here is the way it's phrased. Do You think if you began seeing yourself that way that you'd keep rehashing the mistakes of your past? you keep playing those things over and over and over again like a repeated recording. If you saw if you truly saw yourself the way Jesus sees you, do you think that recording would keep playing or do you think it gets interrupted? I think it gets interrupted. Because you realize that that's not you anymore. Do you think you'd keep minimizing your value? Now, I'm not saying we should idolize ourselves, but I do think we should see ourselves the way the Lord sees us. By the way, today's Sanctity of Life Sunday. Sanctity of Life Sunday. Since the 80s, we've been declaring this Sunday in January as Sanctity of Life Sunday. And so what are we doing on a day like today? Sanctity of Life Sunday. We're saying, all right, by the grace of God, we value life. Why do we value life? Because God is the author of life. Somebody created in the image of God has intrinsic value. And we as believers will preach that in a cultural context, but how often do we preach it to our own heart at the same time? Do you believe that in the eyes of God, your life has value? Absolutely does. When you look at what scripture says, and sometimes it's very easy to believe things theologically and then fail to apply them to our own hearts. Do you think you'd keep putting yourself down if you began seeing yourself the way the Scripture describes you? Do you ever just do something that you're like, oh, that's just so dumb? Why? Do, and you've done it like a hundred times, and you're like, why do I do that? And then you spend the next two weeks beating yourself up about it. Why do that? Why not just look at it and say, yeah, I do dumb things. From time to time, I do dumb things. But guess what? My sense of value, my whole sense of identity is not based on whether or not I make it through life mistake-free. My understanding of who I am in Christ and the fact that there is going to be a day where I will be completely holy, completely blameless, and above reproach for all eternity in His presence, that day is coming. So if Jesus is already seeing me for that day, it probably be okay if I start seeing myself that way now. So if if my whole sense of value is based on whether I make it through life without making some sort of error or some sort of mistake, every time I make an error or a mistake, that's going to be pretty catastrophic. I'm going to have a hard time getting past it. But if my sense of identity is wrapped up in who Christ is, and I realize that my sufficiency isn't in my own merit, that my sufficiency is in Christ and the fact that he's conforming me to his image, and that I will have the privilege to stand in his presence for all eternity with my slate wiped clean, with every ill feeling, every mistake, every error, every foolish thing I once adopted, not pegged to my account forever because Christ took it upon himself. If that's my ultimate reality, why not start living in the joy of that reality right now? Do you know that that's something that over the past decade or so, that that, that's something the Lord's been convincing my heart of more and more and more? And can I tell you, it's a much more joyful way to live when you start seeing yourself through the ultimate outcome, when you begin seeing yourself through the eyes of Christ and realize you're his bride and this is how he looks at you. And if he looks at you this way, it's probably a good idea to start looking at yourself that way as well. Borrow his eyes. See other people and see yourself through his eyes. It will impact the way you treat the people closest to you and it's also going to impact the message you spend your life preaching to your heart. And it's going to make a huge difference on the quality of your life, the culture of your home, the nature of your relationships, and the things that you're willing to do empowered by God for His glory. I actually think that there are some things that I think you'll become a bit bolder in certain areas because you're not going to spend your life fearful of what if I fail? What if I goof this up? Well, guess what? My sense of sufficiency isn't based on whether I get everything right. Maybe I will goof it up. I don't know. But I know how Christ will still see me even if I do. I love this portion of Scripture. That's not a mystery at this point now, right? I love it. It's a beautiful thing to think that Christ would look at his bride and say, I'm going to present you holy and blameless, and above reproach. And I think when we begin to appreciate what Jesus is doing for us, and when we begin seeing ourselves and others through that lens, it's like a whole new way of life is opened up to us. Where we say, you know what? I don't want this world's perspective to be my perspective anymore. That's done. I used to think that way. I used to see myself that way. I used to see other people that way. I used to value those things. I value people and circumstances and things different now because I'm learning to see these things with Christ's eyes. There's one other thing that this portion brings up that I want to finish up with today, and that's this. Don't stray from the hope of the gospel. I love how you have all this theology that the Apostle Paul is explaining about who Jesus is, his nature, how he operates in the church, the things that he's even got in store for us as believers. And then he looks at the Colossians and he's like, let me give you an admonition. Let me give you a challenge. Don't stray from the hope of the gospel. Don't stray from it. Don't go back to a worldly perspective or a worldly mindset. Don't stray from it. Look at what he says in verse 23. He says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So again, I love how this portion of scripture ends. You have Paul challenging the church to remain strong in faith and not shift from the hope that we have in the gospel. When I think of, of that this idea of shifting from that hope, I picture a car swerving all over the road. You ever, you ever find yourself in a context where either you see another car swerving all over the road, or sometimes maybe even you, you're in the car that's swerving all over the road? I had, um, this kind of freaked me out a little bit. I was I was driving, and I happened to be on Four Thirteen South, almost back here to Langhorn, um, last summer after the the funeral of my my childhood pastor. I had driven up to Scranton, and I was speaking for the funeral of of, uh, of the man who was my pastor when I was growing up. And uh, by the way, his he helped. He used to live in this area, and he helped put this building together. He was a volunteer that helped build this building, and I found his graffiti up in the attic above my office. He told me it was there, and I went up there one time, and I looked for it, and I found it. And I was like, look at you. So sometimes pastors write graffiti on a church building. Can you believe it? Up in the attic, it's there. I found it on a beam. But he passed away, and, um, and so I, I went to his funeral, and as I was Driving back, you know, that's just an emotional experience all the way around. It was a several-hour drive, and I left early in the day, and then I was coming back. It was still kind of early in the day, and, you know, at that point, it had been about five hours of driving, plus the... And I just was getting tired, and I had a very scary moment coming down on, on uh, 413 South where I my head slumped, and uh, and I found my... I came to, and when I came to, I was half in the other lane with cars coming, and I was like, oh, my word. And that's one of those things where you you find yourself saying, all right, typically when I find myself in a context like that, I'll make a phone call. I'll call someone because if I'm talking, I stay more alert. Well, I didn't do it. For whatever reason that day, I didn't do it. And then I I woke up and I was half in another lane. And I thought, by the grace of God, I snapped too. Do you ever wonder, like when scripture tells us that angels are ministering spirits, if the Lord's like, wake up, John, wake him up, you know? Like, he's half in another lane, wake him up. You got it, I'm on it, right? I'd love to know what was going on behind the scenes because I don't feel like naturally I just woke up. And, um, and, you know, to the other cars, what are they seeing? They're seeing a car going all over the place probably, right? You know, if someone was in my car, I did not have any passengers, but somebody in the car, what would they be seeing? They'd be seeing me lose my alertness. I'm not paying attention. And here you have Paul saying, continue in the faith. He says, don't shift from the hope of the gospel. So again, in my mind, I just have this image of a car that's going all over the place. And why do cars do that? They do that. Well, sometimes in my context, it was because the driver was sleeping. So sometimes in our walk, do you ever just grow a little fatigued and tired? Feel a little beat up in the midst of a world that doesn't share the values you share? Maybe you're in a family that doesn't share the values you share. You work in a context where people don't share the values you share, and sometimes you get a little tired and makes you want to sleep. Or sometimes we get distracted. Sometimes there could be something over here, and we're like, oh, wait, what's going on over here? And then we get distracted from the hope of the gospel. Or sometimes we could even be under the influence of something unhealthy. That's certainly something that can impair somebody's ability to drive. So if we ever welcome something into our life that's unhealthy, and now it has undue influence in our life, and it's distracting us from the hope that we're supposed to have in the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, here's the thing. I'm not interested in swerving. I don't want to become sleepy in my faith. I don't want to become distracted from what's truly important. Now, I don't want to give the evil one or the shallow philosophies of this world undue influence over the way I think. And I, and I believe that, that you feel the same way about your walk with Christ. So let me say this as we finish up. I enjoy this portion of Scripture because it reminds us of a variety of things that we might not have remembered about Christ or might not have realized about him to begin with. But I think when we know who Jesus really is, and when we come to realize that our trust in him is not wasted faith, we can look at, at, at what he's allowed us to experience here and re, we realize that we are in a permanent union with our creator and sustainer, who is the head of the church, who presents us as holy and blameless before the Father. And I look at this and I rejoice over it, but I also just want to ask again, just like we asked at the beginning, did you know that Jesus wants to do this for you? Did you know this about him? If you're learning this for the first time, are you willing to take him up on that offer? That's what he wants to do for your life. He's not just an afterthought after your life ends. He wants to change the quality of your life right now. He wants to be Lord of your life right now. He's head of the church. He wants to be Lord of your life right now. He'll change your life right now. You don't have to wait till heaven to experience the change of life that he wants to facilitate within you. He wants to do that for you right now. He wants you to have the opportunity to go through life anchored to the hope of the gospel, knowing that no matter what takes place, you don't need to swerve from that hope because he absolutely is and will work all things out together for his glory and for your good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of scripture like this and to think about the things that the Apostle Paul felt compelled to to try and explain and clarify for the Colossian believers. Lord, we know that he was speaking to a young church. He was speaking to a church that didn't have access to the to the completed canon of Scripture like we have. Speaking to a group of people living in the midst of a pagan culture. He was speaking to a group of people that, and it becomes clear as we go further and further into this book, but he was speaking to a group of people that they seemed a bit, confused about some central areas of doctrine. And Lord, we know that it can be very easy for us at times to become confused about certain things because we have the message of this world pounding into our mind and pounding into our attention. It's like from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep and maybe even ringing around in our heads while we're sleeping. But Lord, you've given us your word to counteract this. You've given us your word to reveal your heart to us. There are things in this portion of Scripture that we would not have known if you had not divinely revealed them to us. There are things here that we only know because you've made them plain. So, Lord, thank you for making these things clear, and thank you for the opportunity that we have to walk with you in the midst of all circumstances of life. Lord, we know that it can be very easy for us at times to adopt this world's perspective, and that certainly impacts the way we see ourselves, the way we treat our spouses, and the way we we operate in our homes, the way we interact with other relationships. And Lord, you want us to begin to see one another the way you see your church. So as we interact with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we pray that we would borrow your eyes, that your eyes would become our eyes, that you would transform our thinking like your word promises us that you'd delight to do, and that we would see things differently. Lord, thank you so much for the new life that you've blessed us with. It's not just just an improvement, it's a new life. You've given us a new life. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. As this scripture reminds us today, we were living in hostility toward you. Our minds were hostile to your holiness. We weren't ambivalent, we weren't just ignorant, we were hostile. So Lord, we pray that that hostility would be something that, that you would take away and that you would help us to to replace that with humility and a willingness to listen to your voice and a willingness to just go about life in such a way that we allow you to be Lord. We stop fighting against that concept. Lord, thank you so much for the fact that when we gather together as a local church, that we do so as, as people who are committed to sing songs that give you praise, as people who are committed to study your word, as people who are committed to live out our faith in you and demonstrate that to one another and to this lost world. Lord, you've placed us in this community as your ambassadors. You've given us the opportunity to represent you, and we pray that we would do so well wherever you give us friendships or influence or anything of that nature. And Lord, just thank you so much for the fact that we're able to carve out some time today to put all the things aside that tend to cloud our minds and just think about what your word reveals to us. Thank you for the, the, the truth that you've revealed in your word, and we pray that it would have a marked impact on our day-to-day lives as we seek to live it out. Lord, you encourage the Colossians to live it out, and you use the Apostle Paul to convey that message. And, Lord, we're grateful that a couple thousand years later we could be reading these same things and be encouraged to live them out as well. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your presence with us today. We commit ourselves to you now, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. A powerful prayer life does not require hiking a mountain to be able to hear from God. God can meet us right in the middle of our busy lives to help,